Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today remotely by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today, we're obviously recording remotely due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic that has, um, you know, shuttered Wayo's uh, studio. We're all in our separate rooms or whatever on our laptops. And what we want to talk about is as this thing goes on, how are people responding to that? Not just in the workplace, but broadly, like the media narratives that have emerged following all of this, I guess. It, I'm sorry if that's a bit of a rambling explanation. Perhaps one of you two could do better. Yeah, it's it's fine. I think all of our brains have been melted by the cocoa. Um, I think, like, yeah, it's just hard to to coherently do anything anymore. Yeah, so uh, media has been going around, and you see a million commercials anytime you turn on any piece of media about how uh, you know, thank you to the healthcare workers and the grocery store people and your teachers and, and, um, custodians and, and everybody. Thank you. You guys are the heroes. We love you. Like even the Google doodle this week, or this past two weeks, I think was, uh, thanks to all the heroes out there. And yeah, so we just want to take a day to unravel. Like, why are we talking about workers who normally we don't give a crap about as a society, why we're talking to, about them in terms of this hero stuff and, you know, what, what, what's going on there. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Did you guys see the Google doodle at all? I did not. My mother sent me the one that was specifically about distance learning. Um, which is, uh, I mean, it has been kind of an interesting experience because for years, every one of the worst people involved in education has been telling teachers that what we need to do is flip or blend or toss or uh, saute or like, I don't know what other cooking process our classrooms <laughs> are supposed to undergo in order to create this like technologically enabled educational landscape. And now we're all kind of forced to live in that because basically nowhere is holding classes really. And what you're finding out is that, again, I work with a very specific population and some of them are the the vast majority of my students I would say are being actually very conscientious but of course that's not the you're not spending your time just like you wouldn't in a real life classroom you're not spending the majority of your time with the kids who are actually doing the work and and reaching out to teachers and saying hey I'm having trouble with this or blah blah, blah. you're spending the majority of the time with the kids who are turning things in 2 weeks late with no explanation or who are sending you messages like, I'm having problems with the management system, but then don't help you out. It's, um, I like to say that my kids are out boomering the boomers because they <laughs> expect everything, all of these things, they expect them to work. 
and they don't realize how much of this stuff uh, depends on having somebody who actually knows how the technology works and is able to help you with those problems or at least pinpoint them there to look at it with you. Um, but I realize that that's kind of uh, something I've been holding in for a couple of weeks rather than <laughs> directly relating. But it does remind me of the fact that the, the thing that I bring to this is that I a lot of this rhetoric is what you already heard about teachers, that teachers are heroes who should all be paid six figures and yet aren't, uh, that teachers are on the front lines raising the future of, of our nation, and yet they're treated like crap generally and underpaid and overqualified for anything else and blah, blah. And now that treatment is getting extended to a whole spate of workers across the economy, all of whom, as Lou pointed out, we horrendously mistreat on a day-to-day basis. Like these are generally speaking, almost entirely speaking, low-wage workers who often don't get uh, benefits, don't get full-time pay, don't get really anything from their workplaces. And now they're what everybody's depending on. And just like with teaching and with a lot of other professions, we've decided to make rhetorical concessions because that's the only kind of concessions we ever make to the grand majority of people in this country. Yeah. Uh, we, just, we call you a hero and that's why you're supposed to be okay with the fact that your job sucks and you don't get paid any real money for doing it and you're mistreated and exposed to abuse. Yeah, yeah exactly think- that. I mean, yes, all of that is true, though. Some of it I think we're going to get to later in terms of like the mistreatment of these workers, these people we now consider heroes. Um, Lou, you started by talking about commercials and it's every third commercial now is some car dealership saying we're all in this together. Please buy a Subaru during this (laughs) difficult time. (laughs) Yeah, no, my dude, we very clearly aren't all in this together. Thanks for the thought. Uh, Subaru is here for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, in this, this unprecedented times, uh, we at Kellogg's are here for you no matter what. I, I um, think my I think my favorite was the one where it was Domino's franchisees telling you yes. how great it is to see uh, people still wanting pizza during the <laughs> pandemic. That uh, there's been a couple that I think are particularly odious because we've covered these companies on the show. So, you know, they're fish in a barrel club. But like (laughs) the one of Amazon thanking its workers, that Mm -hmm. one annoyed me. And I know I've made this a bit, but it is increasingly difficult not to swear on this show. And that commercial (laughs) was the one thing I was trying to avoid thinking about because I knew that the F-bomb is not very far away. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's been a lot of garbage. And as no, as you pointed out, like almost all of it comes from notoriously bad companies as far as worker treatment. Uh, There's a definite line of uh, it's almost militaristic. Some of the rhetoric that surrounds Mm -hmm. this pandemic, you know, it it, uh, the president has taken to calling it the invisible enemy. I'm not sure who taught him that term, but it is lodged <laughs> in his brain and clearly won't leave now. That's when, normally, that's when he normally calls people of color. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. Moving on. <laughs> uh, I, I think 
We in America have an issue where we view every problem through the lens of military, you know, to the extent that we have collective problems and, you know, there are problems that can't just be solved on an individual level. It is a war. It's a war on poverty. It's a war on drugs. It's a war on terror, which was an actual war. Right. Is an actual war. And I don't think that line of um, rhetoric is particularly helpful necessarily, but you're seeing it also in concrete ways. There's an article in uh, GQ by Talia Levin, which starts this way. This week, a flight of eight military jets, handsome and sleek with bright red tails, flew over the shuttered Las Vegas Strip, so close to the city the roar could be heard from the ground. Flying in tight formation from Nellis Air Force Base, they issued plumes of cloud into the desert air. It was a thank you from the United States military, said the U.S. Air Force Demonstration Squadron, to show appreciation and support for the healthcare workers, first responders, and other essential personnel in Las Vegas and around the nation who are working on the front lines to combat the coronavirus. That's great. Yeah. And and you know that that means that our military is more progressive because back in the 80s, they would have bombed them. <laughs> um, I think – so I'm, I'm going to try to keep this uh, very, very brief. But uh, George Lakoff, who's a, a linguist, and actually he's been an advisor to a Democratic Party for decades, so this might explain some things. But – he wrote a book about languages as metaphors, and the impact of how true all of this is is somewhat contested. But he talked about how one of the problems that we have in American society is that we regard arguments as war. So, you know, it's, oh, you shoot down your opponent's argument, or it's the clash of ideas. Like everything is metaphorized and, and construed as combat. And when you do that, you're going to create, um, you know, in war, ultimately, people don't really win. Countries win, business wins, the military wins, but the actual working people don't win. They die. And when you construe arguments as being that way, what you're essentially saying is that there has to be total defeat and total victory. There there has to be a zero something. And that when you think of discussion and argument that way, that eliminates any possibility for learning or growth. And it's kind of the same idea here that poverty or drugs or, uh, you know, they originally called it the war against terror. And then they realized what that acronym spelled out Um, when they when you create an enemy like that and you say we're going to deploy everything in a militaristic way. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Uh, It took them a while, too. (laughs) Yeah, it It took like a year. Oh, okay. But, um, But the point is, when you construe everything as a war. What you're going to create is this idea that this thing has to be completely stamped out using the most brute force way possible. And number one, we know that that doesn't really work in this case. But number two, that's also not what we're doing. We're not actually like, yes, if we're following all the social distancing guidelines and whatever, you are trying to get these things to slow down, but nobody is out there just like aggressively, you know, carpet dusting antiviral drugs all over major American <laughs> cities. Number one, because that wouldn't work. But number two, like, because they don't exist yet. So we're not in the war phase of this anyway. And it, it's ridiculous to call it that. Yeah, that, that was my thoughts precisely is that, you know, based on the past 20 years at very minimum, of 
how everything is the war against or the war, you know, everything is, is terms in, in the rhetoric of war that we don't have the language to properly discuss what's going on here. Um, because for so much it's, well, we have the, the troops, they volunteer to do this. And so we have to be, we have to like every once in a while be like, thank you troops without you. I can't have my barbecue. So God bless. Love you. Every three months we have a holiday. That's true. Labor day is about the troops now. It is. It is absolutely about the troops labor day. Um, anyways, but like, yeah, we just, we just throw them a bone every once in a while, but we don't, you know, regardless of your thoughts on, on empire building and the use of military force for everything, even if you think that's a good idea, we don't even treat them well when they come back or while they are in active service. And so we, we're translating that and we're just using this, this rhetoric of, of troops to do the same, like, we're grateful for you to healthcare workers and service workers and anybody else who is considered essential now. We're treating them the same thing as if we say thank you and send you pizza every once in a while, we're completely absolved of ever having to give you decent wages or uh, personal protection equipment or anything that would actually matter to their lives. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's the old problem of when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. And in the U.S., since about World War II, what we've had is the United States military. And if we can't bomb a problem, we don't really know what to do about it. Yes, that is exactly what I was about to say. Because it's not just that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's if the last time you did anything right was the time you hammered a nail in, <laughs> then not only is everything going to look like a nail, but you're going to have the residual dopamine from the time you felt like a good person. Because the US, as George Carlin once said, loves getting into a war, major war every 20 years or so, like clockwork. But World War II was one of the few times that that impacted the ordinary citizen more than it usually tends to. And it was one of the few times that essentially everybody got behind this cause. And then on the way back, there was actual help. I mean, the baby boom happened because veterans coming back had access. Well, some veterans coming back had access to the GI Bill which enabled them to go to school to get jobs because there was a strong culture of unions in the workplace so that people could be reabsorbed because you had an upper class that actually very recently understood what happened if you didn't share in the wealth. But now we have none of that and we still have all of the good feeling from all of the people who've gone through remembering the 1940s, the last time that the US was in any way, shape or form the good guy. And so now it's just, well, we need to get back to that mindset because now we're, uh, this is the only kind of enemy that can produce that response. There was a post on Twitter about a week ago or so. Um, I don't remember who made it, but the idea was if you're, say, under 30, you know, what sort of collective victory do you remember this country having? You know, this is a country that used to have those sorts of collective moments of victory on a fairly regular basis. You talk about World War II or the moon landing, but we haven't really had that sense of shared struggle in you know my lifetime at no. any rate. And no. 
Not not one that ended victorious. Well, we did anyways. we did kill Mr. Peanut. That did happen. <laughs> that was like we six weeks that. ago. The, the Planters Corporation. I personally, I personally held the pillow over his face. <laughs> Leaving Mr. Peanut aside, I think there's <laughs> like oh, there the last <laughs> victories we have are you know military victories in essence, and I think that's what spawns this reflex to term everything in terms of a war because we're we're good or we used to be good at winning wars we aren't anymore i was about to say yeah i think that's exactly it and and in reference to this whole shared struggle thing i mean we know that that's not true that that i think is a difference like in the mists of history and nostalgia you have the greatest generation and the baby boomers and and all of these other people saying that in the 1940s we put our differences aside and everyone did what they needed to do for the good of the nation but what they forget is that if you actually read what's going on at the time you had all these rich people chafing under somebody they considered a near dictator essentially telling them maybe this is not the time to put your ego above the national interest. And that's what it took to get them to shut up and sit down for just a few years. There is some, perhaps something to be said about like the Defense Production Act and the role that has played in this ongoing um, coronavirus response and whether it actually has been used i don't think it has no it hasn't that's every time trump goes out there and says he's going to use it and instantly like five billionaires show up on his doorstep to beg him not to and then we built the tools to nationalize things for these moments of crisis and now we just refuse to use them we Mm -hmm. we don't have that sort of collective instinct anymore um we've spent a lot long time talking about uh sort of almost talking around what we're talking about, which is like this response to call people, call essential workers, the ones who have to go in to grocery stores or especially healthcare, the quote unquote front lines of this crisis, um, calling them heroes. And I, I read from that GQ article about how they had a military flyover in Las Vegas, you know, as a way of celebrating it more commonly, you see in every city, the, uh, like organized applause at 7 p.m. when the hospital shifts change and workers are either leaving or entering work. You know, everybody can now agree that these workers are heroes. Uh, even grocery store workers are now getting the label heroes. And I, I guess to give a broad summation of what this episode is going to be uh, 20 minutes into the episode, <laughs> you know, we're going to say that that sort of label – I mean, one, aside from all of like the weird war metaphor stuff that we've discussed, it, it isn't enough. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about the ways in which we are failing these heroes by only calling them heroes instead of actually doing anything for them. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hey, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We talked in the first segment about the reflexive response to 
the situation we now find ourselves in, which has been for a lot of companies and a lot of entities to label the essential workers, the grocery store workers, the hospital workers, especially as heroes. And what we want to get into in this segment is the ways in which our society is not, in fact, treating them like heroes. We are only using those words to paper over the lack of an effective response. Um, Noah, I think you had a good line about this while we were setting up. So one of my longstanding standbys, I guess, in in politics and, and society is that if you have to say something, it's probably not true. If you have to go to the point of, of actually making a rhetorical commitment, it almost certainly obscures that you don't want to make an actual commitment. And you can tell the kind of people that we actually hold up to be heroes by how we treat them. And if you do that in American society, what you very quickly find out is that, no, we don't actually think that nurses and grocery store workers and delivery drivers and people who make food and people who wash dishes and all of those people, we do not actually think that they are in any way heroes. The people we think are heroes are you know, Silicon Valley billionaires who are constantly shocked that they can't do everything, literally everything via slave labor. They're they're allowed to pretty much say and do whatever they want. And there's not really a a response in general from them. Yeah. The people we actually feel are heroes are never ones that when push comes to shove, we actually care about. So right now the heroes are... Um, healthcare workers, um, maintenance workers, uh, grocery clerks, uh, people who do um, like custodial work. So, you know, the whole class of people and the whole um, working class set of folks who under normal circumstances, if you're in a certain socioeconomic class, you're told to make sure you do well in school or you will end up like X. And, and these are the people now that we're saying and, and trying to convince other people that we care about as a society. I mean, obviously we care about them on the show, uh, but everybody else, like the only, I guess, upper class workers that we're relying on right now are doctors. But, you know, nobody, if you're a lawyer um, or if you're a CEO or you're doing anything else like with your MBA or whatever, you're just sitting at home because when push comes to shove, as it did now, we don't need you. I, I think uh, t- just to sort of get into some of the examples of how we are failing these people, uh, there's a story in the Washington Post from April 16th, so last Thursday by the time this airs, uh, headline, Thousands of OSHA complaints filed against companies for virus workplace safety concerns, records show. People working during the pandemic have filed thousands of complaints regarding their exposure to the novel coronavirus and a lack of safeguards at their places of employment, according to records obtained under a Freedom of Information request and reviewed by the Washington Post. The people that we're lauding as heroes, we aren't giving them the gloves or masks, the personal protective equipment, PPE, that they need to do their job safely in this moment. Yeah. And they're being threatened with retaliation if they try to say anything about it. 
And I honestly feel like giving somebody gloves or masks or, or, you know, as we talked about before the world broke, the bare minimum is making sure you have paid sick leave for people and companies like Amazon and Walmart and, you know, these, these mega corporations are still completely uninterested in doing any of that. And they specifically were let off the hook by the government in doing that. All of these programs that sounded pretty good when they were put in place. And ever since the administration has let its usual class of capitalist vultures just absolutely go to town on them, that class of, uh, of government program explicitly left out companies like Amazon and Google because they were just supposed to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Because if there's anything that people like Jeff Bezos are famous for, it's how kind they are to the people they already don't pay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just to read from some of these uh, records that the Washington Post received, quote, The call center with over 400 people is unsanitary, one complaint reads. Employees have to share desks and people are within two feet from each other, which why is a call center still open in this moment? Um, Quote, in the behavioral unit, employees are not allowed to wear surgical masks because it hurts patients' feelings, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that patients come in with fevers, says another from a California hospital. Yeah. That that was the part that particularly angered me about all of this, because it, there's something, and we're going to get more into it later, and I will reserve most of my rage for that point, but there's something unique, uh, or at least uniquely just infuriating about this idea that if you are an employee who wants to take care of your physical health, and in these circumstances, typically, you're doing that not so that you know, you can perform your heroics, but just so you don't get laid off or furloughed, yeah. if you want to just not get sick, that in and of itself is treated as an insult to the customer. Yeah. So like, you're not allowed to wear a mask and gloves because the patient feels like they're hurting you. And honestly, it, again, coming from my experience in education, it very much reminds me of a lot of the stuff that we hear peddled at us about stuff that doesn't have anything to do with how we treat students. It's just like uh, part of what's considered quote unquote professionalism, but it essentially just reduces you to somebody who's not supposed to have any human feelings whatsoever, unless they're positive. It's, and, and this is just transferring that emotional labor, which is what it is onto a physical plane where it can affect not just your mental health and, and stress you out or whatever, but it affects your ability to continue doing your job. Like you would think this is the one time that people in power and workplaces would maybe shut up and let the people who know what they're doing, who do the actual work, get on with it. But they can't even do that because then for one second, people might realize that our management class is largely completely useless and does nothing. What, Noah? They're useless? (laughs) One thing I think about is how it's like, well into April before um, Wegmans was allowing its workers to wear gloves and masks on the job. There was, uh, and Wegmans is a company that is lauded for how it treats its workers locally in this area. But when it came down to their safety, their ability to avoid catching this virus, you know, the aesthetics outweighed that concern. Yeah. So, 
when you see companies like Wegmans, hospitals that should honestly be the, I, I don't think this is controversial, be the place that cares the most about the health of its employees. When you see companies like are described in that article, food factories, uh, call centers, and all that, the way that they're treating their employees and refusing to make any concessions to them, even under this time, all it tells you is that the reason it took so long for this kind of thing to start happening is just because companies were trying to figure out what benefit they could get from it. They only started allowing employees to wear protective equipment once they figured out, well, in the long run, we will be able to exert more control over them. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, even when they do allow people to wear protective gear of any kind, by and large, you're paying for that out of your own pocket. Mm -hmm. You're paying for that out of you know, whatever measly wages you're getting, because again, these are the primary people who are still working outside of uh, the home at this point are people who don't make much more than minimum wage. Yeah. Um, are, are either of you too familiar with the term perseverance porn? Uh, yes. Yes. Unfortunately. Um, I, I imagine many of our listeners are not and might be, concerned by the term but um it refers to sort of the broader trend of like these supposedly feel-good stories about usually workers going above and beyond the call of duty to basically to do the job that they need to pay rent um you mean you mean showing their grit and stick to it (laughs) yes yes Noah. um all back Quote from a story by uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, uh, quote, you've seen or heard or read the personal interest story a thousand times. An enterprising seven-year-old collects cans to save for college. A man with unmatched moxie walks 15 miles to his job. A low-wage worker buys shoes for a kid whose mother can't afford them. And the idea behind all these stories is they're examples of people who are dealing with problems in an inspiring way, but they are problems that nobody should have to deal with. And yes, the feel good nature of these stories allows us to turn a blind eye to boy, those problems are bad. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and I think in a similar way, that's what the label of hero and all this discussion of heroism does for, you know, the circumstances we find ourselves in now. Yeah, that's true. Because that's the other thing with heroes. Heroes become invariably martyrs. And so when, you know, doctors and nurses get sick and die fighting a pandemic, and look, even I'm doing it because of the verb that I just used. Um, But when, when they suffer the natural consequences of being around so many sick people, then and and they die or grievously ill or, or they're taken out of circulation, then, you know, that's, they're they're heroes they're there are saints they're the closest thing we have to that but that also means that you don't have to do anything for them just like in the traditions that have saints those were often people who were mocked and mistreated and abused in their own time it's this constant thing of we've now turned it around since you never have to accept somebody like that in their own time, we've decided, oh, well, now we'll just label you that ahead of time and save ourselves the trouble. Uh, That point about these workers not being heroes, but martyrs is one made explicit by uh, Talia Levin in that GQ article I referenced earlier. Um, I'm going to quote here. 
In order to be fed, we are asking men and women across the country to feed themselves to the maw of death. In order to be nursed and doctored back to life, we are asking nurses and doctors to die. But it doesn't have to be so. Quote, we're not essential, we're sacrificial, Walmart cashier Jennifer Suggs told New Orleans Public Radio WWNO. I will be replaced if I die from this. I don't have a mask or gloves. The only thing I have is a stupid blue vest. Uh, She goes on in the end. Uh, By cheering martial metaphor without providing protection and payment, we are asking for martyrdom, not heroism. Insensible, unnecessary martyrdom, a death caused by the miserliness of capital, the dysfunction of government, the failure of a state so comprehensive it staggers the mind. Yeah. My my concern when all of this was starting was that capital was going to use the mass layoffs of millions of people to restructure the economy such that, uh, you know, everybody's a contract worker and they can basically pressure any, but any of us to do whatever they want, because what are they going to do? Like, what are we going to do about it? But I, there's just so much anger that might right still now. Happen. That might well, still happen. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is. But I, I like, there is just so much anger about the, hoops that people are being asked to go through or or not, not people in general, but workers, especially. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, and saddest cases of workers, you know, this ridiculous system we have is the um, meat plant in South Dakota. That it's the single biggest outbreak in the States. It's something like 500 cases of uh, Corona from one meat plant. And in a town with a very small population right exactly and the first time i heard about this story the headline was something like 483 cases of corona biggest outbreak in the u.s history how will the pork market be affected (laughs) so they couldn't even phrase it in terms of you know these people have to go to work because they don't have a choice they're working in unsafe conditions um which has led to their you know, even worse than moss and than usual because meat processing is a notoriously dangerous industry, and now a whole bunch of them are sick. And the the headline that people saw first was, "Well, your bacon might be more expensive now." Like, what the heck? And and I think people are so angry. We were angry before, and now we're just apoplectic about the conditions and, and what we're, what people are being asked to do. Yeah. I I think one of the other problems with all this hero rhetoric is it implies a sort of choice in the matter. Um, Yeah. And it, it doesn't acknowledge the ways in which these people are just doing jobs. They are doing jobs because they need the wage in order to pay the rent at the end of the month, which, you know, hasn't been suspended in, many cities or states. Um, they are doing the job for the same reasons often that they did the job before all this began. It's it's not so much a heroism as a necessity. And um, that's a point that's made in this article I came across uh, in a newsletter called Vittles. It's by the Angry Workers Collective, uh, describing their life on a, a food production line in, in the UK. Um, it's like in the U.S., food production in the U.K. seems to be done largely by immigrants, um, in this case from Eastern Europe. Um, and the article ends with, 
with this paragraph, which I think is a good summation of why I have such an issue with this hero label. Quote, heroes are expected to go above and beyond and risk their lives for the benefit of others. Heroes don't expect recognition or wage set to a level that actually corresponds to the social necessity of their work. Heroes can just be applauded for their altruistic ways, and we don't have to question a world in which people who work in the city or in advertising are valued exponentially more, both financially and in terms of social status, than people who actually make it go round. So let's ditch all this hero talk and instead... Let's think about why the people who make the meals you eat, who are on the bottom rungs of the labor market, are really continuing to put their lives at risk. It's not heroism. They just don't have a choice. Yeah, there it is. that's precisely it. Yeah. Again, Ryan, you've said this more than once on the show. I know more than once on episodes that I've been on. But there is an extremely reverse correlation between the 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 need, the societal need for a certain job and the way that we treat the people who do it. Well, and- no, that isn't just my idea. I mean, that's something you've talked about. That's something like when you talk about your teaching, you are expected to go above and beyond just as a teacher. You're doing it for the love of the job and asking for more would be a bit greedy, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah, see, but for once I was trying not to focus on my experience. <laughs> um, but no, that's exactly it though. The 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 thing that strikes me that literally occurred to me more and more as we've been recording is how much of this is essentially front-loading that. Because you know what's going to happen is um, if you read these articles about what is work going to look like, what is life going to look like, they're based on thin air. Because as that same Vittles article mentioned, um, these frozen meals that are getting made, you know, they're getting made by hand. They're not, that's not automation because you can't have, apparently, you can't produce a robot cheaply enough that'll fold little empanadas all by itself or that will spoon precisely the right amount of filling every time. So you're supposed to have cheaply paid people do it because labor costs less. And meanwhile, all we're hearing is that automation is the big boogeyman, that firms are going to fire people who are not productive, that everything is going to go to machine production. And that's just not absolutely not true. What it is, is they are creating the conditions to allow them to do that. And I hope Lou is right. And I hope that there's so much anger about this, that that can actually stop some things. Because one big thing that we you know, a lot of what I teach is uh, touches on history. And one of the big things that's supposed to be an assumption of modern history is that nothing is inevitable that there is no such thing as something that is destined or has to happen. And I think what you're seeing right now is the stage at which realizing that working class people are angry, that they are being mistreated, that the few economic little, you know, sops that they're getting and this rhetorical commitment to their heroism, that that is not enough. The fact that they're getting fed up with it is why you're finally seeing, number one, these counter narratives come out about how this virus is completely made up and it's not as dangerous as people think. And at the same time, that's why you're finally seeing the rise of oh no, it turns out that the post-coronavirus world will benefit all of the people you already hate. Because it is trying to create the idea that that world must come to pass. That it will not be the result of active choices made by those horrible people. Yeah, I I think you know, it does not have to be this way has been a running theme of punching out since it began. You know, we have the ability to have a world that is less cruel and 
that treats its workers better, we choose not to use that ability for a variety of reasons. I, it's 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 hard to to talk about this stuff rationally, um, at least for me, because it seems so very obvious what is going on in terms of the manipulation we have in the rhetoric and mindset and the status quo that this sort of thing seems really obvious. And it's very frustrating um, to have to continuously come up against people who aren't questioning how the world runs or anything like that. Like it's, and you know, especially because we are literally isolated right now and we don't have as many opportunities to go out and talk to people. Like it's, things are, it's, it's hard mentally to, to be in this kind of mindset all the time. I I think we're going to take another break here. And when we come back, we're going to try to put a bow on this discussion, try to find other angles from which to attack it. Um, We'll be back. I'm interrupting this episode to acknowledge that Punching Out is a project of the Rochester DSA and that our work continues during this pandemic. Rock DSA members have put together the Rochester Mutual Aid Network, which is helping people meet their needs during this time. If you would like to contribute financially to our efforts, you can do so at our Venmo account at Rock DSA. Thank you. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Spent the first 40 minutes of this episode talking about this um, hollow narrative of heroism that fails to actually take seriously the needs of the uh, heroes who are considered essential workers during this crisis. You know, there's any number of shortage of personal protective equipment. There are, God knows, a, a, a lack of wages for people working this job, not just during this crisis, but before and inevitably after this crisis. Um, and not to take too much of a right turn with this episode subject, but we want to spend the final segment here talking about another narrative that has emerged in this crisis, almost as a counter to the uh, heroism we've been describing. And that is um, this one that's emerged over the past week of these uh, protests in various states, uh, I, I think more states today now, um, demanding that these states be opened up so that people can go back to work. Yeah, it's, there's something like, uh, yeah, there's something. <laughs> well, you could tell that you could tell that this stuff was going to start the moment and I'm real sorry but I'm going to get cultural about this the moment that things went from um it was bad enough to ask people hey maybe stay 6 feet apart this is this is something that we're all doing we're all sharing in this together you know it's it's something the moment it went from being voluntary but strongly encouraged to being a thing that you were required to do to being, you know, the governor says, you can't do this. You knew that these things were going to begin because I'm sorry, Americans cannot take being told what to do of no political stripe. That That's not specifically a thing, but especially the kind of Americans who are attending these protests, the, you know, 
restaurant and fertilizer store owners, as you put it, Ryan, um, they're a class of people who is used to being allowed to be a petty tyrant with no consequences whatsoever. And this is one of the few times they're actually being asked to do anything for the social contract, and they can't have that. So there have to be protests, there has to be picketing, there has to be a demand that we all put ourselves back on the line and get each other killed so that somebody's wallet will be a little bit fatter. There's some something bleak about the fact that if you look at a country like France, they will go on strike and have these massive nationwide protests if like rail workers get 2% less in their next contract. And here in the US, the only thing that brings people out into the street is the idea of not being able to work for their boss again. Yeah. Well, or, or not being able to have people work for you. Because again, a lot of these people are just petty bourgeoisie. They're not. Right. We, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, call them you know, the blue class workers they would like to pose as. Yeah. Because that's the, the fact of the matter is somebody who is actually has to work in a grocery store at this time where they don't have any kind of protective gear. I don't honestly believe that the vast majority of them are like, Oh yeah, no, this is exactly where I want to be with my life. And, and during this time is having to be around thousands of people who could accidentally kill me. That That's not the case. No, the, these are people who uh, are want to make more money, but are being told actually, no, we can't do that right now because millions of people will die. You can't play with your toys. Except that the toys in this case are your employees. I, as someone who still has to go into the workplace every, you know, Monday through Friday, you know, it's the worst part of my day. It's something I actively dread. And and that was true before this, but especially right. now that there's, you know, a risk of me contracting this disease and, you know, spreading it to my family, I don't want that. I mean, luckily I, you know, I have a mask, I have gloves at work, I wash my hands frequently, my hands are raw, but you know, there's still a, a fear associated with working under this crisis and I don't know why other people would want that fear, but maybe they just don't have that fear. Maybe they don't care. That's exactly what it is because they've laid out th- this is how you see these protests always come out is they lay out the narrative that makes it okay for you not to be afraid. So that's why you have all of the different counter narratives that I'm not going to dignify by bringing up on this show um about how this was created by whoever you want to blame so that you feel okay going out there. Humans are a narrative species. And we have reached the point at which you don't have to have any resemblance to fact whatsoever in your narrative as long as it gets you what you want. And in this case, what a lot of people want to do is, you know, put their employees back to work. I I think if you recall, like going back to the uh, war on terror, there was this narrative that emerged of if you don't go back to business as usual, the terrorists win. And somehow people have applied that logic to this virus as though – it cares if we're scared or not as though it will like let us alone. If we just go about our business. That's right. We should shoot the virus with a gun. That'll teach it a lesson. Yeah. We can't let it disrupt our way of life because that will be letting the virus win. uh, It's a little see that. And that's what I was talking about when I'm, I'm say that 
you know, because we don't have the narrative, the rhetoric in our language to talk about this kind of thing, because we've framed literally everything in terms, in oppositional terms. And, and that's one of the, the side effects is you have a whole bunch of really crazy people now who think that we need to make sacrifices for the economy, for the, you know, magical, mystical, divine, invisible hand. And, And and that's good. Well, and the thing is that all of these people are also people who have voted over the past 20, 30 years uh, in every possible way, in every possible race, at every possible level of government. And I'm, uh, you know, uh, skirting here, but like they have made us get to this situation. Because if you look at how other countries are dealing with it, countries that have workplace cultures and countries that, you know, actually treat uh, somebody as a person, whether they own capital or not. Um, are dealing with this in a very different way, and they have been able to flatten the curve earlier, and they've been able to protect people better, even if they haven't managed to flatten the curve earlier, because they've just actually taken it seriously and taken a collective responsibility seriously. And we just, uh, for some reason, culturally cannot allow ourselves to do that. And I don't understand that. I mean, I'm not from around here in the widest possible sense of the word, but. <laughs> This is one of the things that has most annoyed me about this country forever, that there is nothing that offends an American faster than telling them, you have to do this. Not, it would be a good idea for you to do this, but no, you have to put the damn mask and gloves on. You have to stay six feet apart from somebody else. You can't have your barbecue uh, with people you know, who are from 90 minutes away. That immediately creates this response of, no, F you. I absolutely can and I will. And that's why we are, that's why now we have the highest death toll in the world. Okay. That's why we're never going to get the kind of testing that we need. That's why we're never going to authorize the Defense Production Act because there's just not enough people willing to say this is a travesty. Yeah. Um, I, I think it can be sort of easy and cheap almost at times to look at these protests and say, you know, that they want to sacrifice people for the good of the Dow Jones industrial average. They want the line to go back up again. But there, there, is, there are real concerns that are maybe at the root of, they are being misdirected towards, you know, this idea of we need to reopen the economy now, which is like 16 million people are unemployed now. There are, there are real problems that we as a country have failed to address because our response to this crisis has not been to continue paying workers or as in some countries to pay workers salary so that they don't get laid off. We've boosted the uh, unemployment insurance program, but that can be a hassle to get through in the best of times. But Mm -hmm. so you have people who see a real risk of running out of money at the end of the month because Americans have never had the ability to pay off a thousand dollar emergency if you read any story about this. And so the instinct for many people is if I don't get back to work, I'm going to, you know, go broke. I'm going yeah, to literally starve to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Become homeless. Anything else. And I think where this ties into our earlier discussion is if we're going to talk about people as heroes, you know, we need to treat them like that, but also we need as serious a response for the people who are not working right now. And we haven't had that. No, that's very true. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Ryan. And that's, 
in the ideal worlds in which all these protesters have benevolent thoughts in their head, that's what they're thinking about is they're thinking about the fact that like, what is it? 40 to anywhere between 40 and 60% of Americans can't even afford a $400 emergency, let alone being laid off unexpectedly when they don't have the resources like yeah, unemployment benefits have been increased, but nobody can get through. Right. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, uh, not having a paycheck for two months is a legitimate crisis in your life. And I, I, exactly. I don't want to downplay that. That's yeah, that is no, very sure. true. And, that, and, and in the ideal world, that's what they're thinking about. I think so that behooves you to have a response so that you can prevent these sorts of protests and this sort of conspiracizing that says uh, actually social distancing is communism and that says, you know, we need to open up and deaths be damned because, you know. Right. I think that's what, that's where my actual anger with this stems from is the fact that it's the narrowness of the vision. It's not saying we should have a comprehensive program. First of all, because we already saw what Eugene Scalia did with the programs that were put in place. He immediately did everything possible to poison pill all of them because he's allowed to do that. And so I, I get why people don't trust that a public sector response would do that. I get why you've got people complaining about OSHA and saying, you know, the agency's gone down the tubes and all of that. But the response to that is to say, like we've been saying, we have a choice to make. We can direct this in a positive in a positive way. But instead, what you've got is we're we're channeling all of that sentiment through these protests. And like you said, while we were setting up, Ryan, I think the degree to which they're being manufactured is kind of um, open for discussion. But they are definitely meant to take a real concern and channel it in a very specific direction, which is just anger at like the Chinese. Or something like that. Instead of anger at the fact that we have a government that exists purely as a piggy bank for billionaires. Right. There's been sort of a dichotomy set up now, at least in terms of media narratives, between uh, staying shut down for months while people go broke at home or – we reopen the economy and hundreds of thousands of people die to this virus, you know, so that we can get people back to work. And other countries have not seen that dichotomy because they're willing to have a state response. They have a government that it at least, you know, if not perfect, is willing to help people meet their needs so that they don't have to go back to work and risk catching this disease. Yeah. So, when uh, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston um, a few years ago now, I think it was two years now, um, the it was made readily apparent that the building system that they have down there, which is basically build whatever you want, wherever you want, it doesn't matter, has real world, world consequences in insane flooding annually now, like yeah. houses underwater every single year. And Immediately after Harvey, when all of this was made incredibly apparent, the response from the business community and business owners is, actually, we don't want anything to change because our recipe for success is clearly great. And that is what is happening on a national scale now, is it doesn't matter that we don't have any social safety nets whatsoever, that we don't have any health care or job security 
or anything like resembling enough for people to live. But the recipe for success has been so great. I, I think that's a very good point. At an institutional level, I think there's a fear that once you open up the door to, hey, the government can actually be a force for good. It can help people through these sorts of moments. There's a fear that once you open that door, you can't close it up again once this crisis is over. You're going to have you know, all of the ideological arguments of the right that has been made for the past 40, 50 years. They will go out that door. They will lose in the face of this crisis if we don't just take the worst possible response to it. Right. Because that's what they've been banking on for the past 50 years. It's just bungle the government response to everything and then blame the government for it, mm-hmm. rather than the fact that the people in charge would, were a bunch of morons and right. and villains, really, because it's not nothing to do with their intelligence. It's their choices. And now what they're trying to do is just ensure that that stays the case forever. Because the part that they forget about those wonderful times of shared sacrifice during World War II is the part where, you know, there were thousands of strikes a year, is the part where the New Deal was this massive, for some people, expansion of domestic obligation by the government. They don't want to remember that part because then they might feel bad about where they are at in today's society. Well, more concretely, they might lose power. Yep. Yep. We're running up on the end of our hour here, so uh, I think this has been a good discussion, if at times um, in a lot of different directions. Um, <laughs> I'm Ryan. It's the punching out guarantee. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> the, this was punching out, sort of. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at PunchingOutWayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.